Welcome to The Medical Republic, a podcast for curious GPs. My name's Felicity Nelson and I'm interviewing my colleague Francine Crimmins today about her fascinating feature on uh, tidying up. Hey, yeah, so I'm Francine Crimmins, the other co-host of the podcast. Uh, Felicity, I guess, has to say that it's fantastic because she sits next to me. She, <laughs> she couldn't say that it's... Well, I haven't read the final version, but the, the draft was really nice. Oh, there you I go. Was fun. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo is a show that hit Netflix over the Christmas period and it grew in such enormous popularity. It's basically like the banner... TV series over the Christmas period. Um, it was indeed. Did you watch it over Christmas? I did. For me, though, I am no Marie Kondo myself, but I think I have a system of the way that I do things. Uh, so I could watch it through the lens of just being very fascinated by the techniques that she was laying out. Marie Kondo is pretty much a Japanese tidying guru. She shows up at the house of these US families that are just overwhelmed They're not even by their stuff. Like they, a lot of them were pretty tidy, I thought. Yeah, I think you have to look at it in the way of when you're maybe a bit younger with no family, you don't. You only have to look after yourself and your things. So what does she do? She just turns up on their doorstep and says, just, just chuck it all out, guys. No, so there's a few different, uh, I guess, mechanisms that she uses to sort out the mess of life. And one of them is asking yourself what sparks joy so you handle an item and you ask yourself does this spark joy if it doesn't that's usually a sign that it's uh, has to go to the gods and into the recycling bin or the landfill bin unfortunately and then she says that the way to let go of things is to thank them for their it is yeah so i mean my feature was actually looking at kind of the clinical implications of um, anthropomorphizing objects. So it can actually be a real problem to look at an item and say, thanks for your service, because then you're attributing a whole series of emotions and that item automatically, wouldn't you think, would become more valuable. And that's the flip side of it, is what happens when every item brings you joy? So there are some people that uh, find what experts would call not joy in items, but a lot of solace from items. And this is where you can actually have such an emotional tether to items that the attachment to these physical items can become quite overwhelming and the absence of them can be very anxiety-inducing. For some people, I guess there's a few ways that it can manifest into something uh, far more in terms of object attachment. The most common that most people probably know is hoarding disorder. So what is hoarding disorder? So hoarding disorder is when people are attributing value to physical items, regardless of the actual value of the item. So this might manifest in uh, the extreme inability to let go of items once they are acquired. Another point uh, that may classify it is their home actually becoming so full of items that the home itself is no longer being able to be used for its original intended purpose. Mm-hmm. So these are some of the uh, signs that could classify hoarding disorder in a patient. And why is it bad? Yeah, so there's actually a range of reasons why it's bad. So people, although they might have hoarding disorder at a very young age, we don't really start to see the health implications of this disorder for many, many years. And the reason for this is mainly because it takes quite a lot of years to acquire the amount of items in a home that then cause problems. So for people 
that are in their 50s and 60s and into their 70s, that's when it can become quite problematic. The first of these reasons why it's problematic is because these people are already in an age group where we see a lot of age-related illnesses. Mm -hmm. So they could just... they're tripping over? They're tripping over, yeah. So they're already frail. They might have other diseases in their older age. And the thing about hoarding properties is that you can have many, many items that become stacked one on top of the other from the floor to the ceiling, whether it's newspapers or so it's actually leaflets. That falls on people. It's very dangerous and yeah. it doesn't take much, as we know, like to walk into something in your home or have something fall. It's hard enough in non-hoarding uh, properties for older people to not have falls. So you can imagine if there's lots of things in the way that it's mm. vastly more dangerous for these and patients. the other one, fires? Yeah, so fires... There was a study in Victoria done a few years ago where 25% of fatalities that happened in hoarding properties that had fires were totally preventable. And you have that for the same reason. So if a fire starts, uh, things might fall and it blocks exits or people become trapped under items. But the other thing that happens with hoarding disorder is you can have people that acquire so many things that they're actually unable to enter vital rooms of the house. So vital rooms being... Uh, places where you clean yourself, like the bathroom, and places where you prepare meals as well, which means that people... They stop cooking. Yeah, so if you can't access these rooms, you're they no longer... washing. Yeah. Yep. Maybe and they can't sleep on one of the beds, so they sleep on the couch. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awful. Which are all um, indications that someone might also have a hoarding disorder. So one thing that someone with a hoarding disorder might actually have is malnutrition. And this is because they can't access their kitchen anymore, so they're setting up a makeshift uh, kitchen of sorts, maybe in another area of the house, or they're eating lots of takeout or um, really basic microwave foods and things like that. Uh, so that is one thing that can happen when you have hoarding disorder. And in turn, it's a big circle because it's those same makeshift kitchens that can cause these fires in the first place. Oh, okay. I think it's also... Uh, a really important part of this condition is just highlighting how if you are seeing a patient with hoarding disorder or you suspect that they might have hoarding disorder and equally family and friends, the worst thing that you can do is actually force uh, them to clean up their property or alternatively deceive them and clean up their property for them. Ooh. Yeah. So intervention's not a good idea. Intervention is not a good idea. It really has to... Come from them? Yeah, and cognitive behaviour therapy. So it's... Uh, the same therapy that you would use for OCD behaviours is also recommended by psychologists for people with hoarding disorder. That means they have to kind of recognise the problem they and do. then seek out help. Does that ever happen? Do, they, do these psychologists actually have lots of patients? They do. So oh, one of the, there's a few different groups uh, that facilitate hoarding disorder groups. One of the psychologists that I spoke to runs one for Lifeline mm -hmm. and she actually believes that having people with hoarding disorder in a group scenario is actually quite affirming for the patients and this is because people can feel a lot of shame with hoarding disorder and by speaking to other people who actually have the same feelings that they do about their things or the inability to let go of their items around them it's very therapeutic for them to hear other people who have those shared experiences mm. so what's the recovery look like does it take forever or is it yeah well I mean nothing's overnight when you think about it 
these people that appear on Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, they are not people with hoarding disorder. They are people that just have acquired too many things. So then you can imagine that someone who has something like hoarding disorder and then it's left untreated for a period of 30 years, they've actually acquired so many things. Mm -hmm. And at that point of chronic hoarding disorder, it can take years to clean up. And one of the psychologists was actually saying it's more than a full-time job. And that actually kind of brings me to the next point where it's very problematic that this disorder is being treated under the normal mental health care plan, which only gives patients access to 10 sessions Mm -hmm. because it's fairly agreed upon by professionals that people with hoarding disorder, you have to be in it for the long haul with treatment Mm. and 10 just isn't enough. Right, okay. People with hoarding disorder can be helped. And I think the more that we talk about these things through something as popular culture as Marie Kondo, it's drawing attention to behaviours that people might present with to their, uh, to their GP with. And these are things that maybe wouldn't be attributed to um, a problem with it, acquiring things at home, but it actually gives medical health professionals maybe a little clue or a little insight into how people are living in their houses, which is quite important. Uh, One thing is because GPs don't do home visits anymore, they're no longer able to see into people's lives in the same way that maybe they could 20, 30 years ago. We should also make the distinction that hoarding disorder is just one disorder that might lead to a house that is in uh, a different condition. People with depression can also have problems with motivation. And as we know, this might lead to a house that is a bit more messy or untidy or they don't keep on top of household tasks in the same way. they're not attached. They're just not able to do all the things they would want to do. Taking a step back, though, it is useful for some people. And, I mean, I was talking to a GP who was saying that some of the methods might be useful for GPs who, for example, share practices. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's also just a thing of communication, like, do you own this? Do we use this? Like, where is this from? How did it end up as a constant trophy on the desk? Yeah, I think we have, like, a lot of respect for items that they don't necessarily deserve. But, yeah, if they've lost their value and their use, you know, a textbook that's 40 years old, maybe it's time to to let it go. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. There's just so many things that are out of date and not even current issues and People in science tend to hold on to them and they'd have no clinical use anymore, you'd think. Yeah, well, this is why I've gone paperless, you know, because now I can just feel better than everybody. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. Guiding light and minimalism. <laughs> um, okay, well, thank you, Francine, for those uh, very insightful comments. Uh, very, very interesting. And, um, yeah, I feel slightly less inspired to follow Marie Kondo's advice, which is possibly good. It's possibly a good thing. I can keep all those books. Yeah, I guess the biggest takeaway is that cleaning your house just shouldn't really have to be that stressful. Yeah, absolutely. of our podcast this week, we're going to turn to a completely different topic, the universal flu vaccine. I've always found this really fascinating because it's always been just out of reach. It's kind of like the holy grail for vaccine research. So the flu is the only virus for which we have a vaccine, 
where we have to change the vaccine every single year to keep up with the evolution of the flu virus. Uh, and researchers have come up with so many different ways of trying to create a universal flu vaccine that might be able to be given once and um, topped up in a, in a couple of years' time, but um, a vaccine that will protect you against all the different strains of flu, um, including pandemic strains. Um, but it's never been done. But this research team in Melbourne at the Peter Doty Institute have done some really cool research where they found parts of the flu virus that are exactly the same in type A, type B and type C flu, which means that if they can find a way of making your immune system recognise that parts of the flu, then they've got a universal flu vaccine. So I was so excited about this that I decided to invite Marius on the show to talk about his research. My name is Marius Koutsakos. Um, I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne at the Peter Doherty Institute. You made this amazing discovery uh, that came out in um, Nature Immunology last week and it was sort of splashed across the news. Do you want to tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so our work focuses on trying to develop novel influenza vaccines and particularly we're focusing on vaccines that do not require annual reformulation or as we call them, universal vaccine. And this would be vaccines that can protect us from any type of influenza virus that may cause a seasonal epidemic, but also those that may cause the next pandemic. And uh, we focus on a subset of the uh, white blood cells called killer T cells. And these cells recognize and kill infected cells. And so they can promote recovery from an infection. And we, the focus of our work was to try and identify parts of the influenza viruses that are shared across all the different viruses and that they could therefore be the basis of a universal vaccine. And what was uh, so novel about the research that you've done, you and your, your research team have done? Well, while it's previously known that those killer tissues are important for providing protection against influenza A viruses, uh, we were able to show that these killer tissues can also provide protection against um, other types of influenza viruses like influenza A, B, and C. Um, and this was quite exciting because we were able to show that um, they can fight all the different types of influenza viruses that can infect humans. And my understanding is that it's quite hard to find a universal flu vaccine because at the moment the way we do vaccines for the flu is that we focus on the external bits of the flu virus. Um, which mutates rapidly um, and evolves over time. But we, that's why we have to keep changing the vaccine every year. But I understand that you focused on a slightly different part of the flu virus, which doesn't change so rapidly. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So the problem with the flu viruses is that, one, there is um, extreme diversity in them. So there is just a very large number of them out there, and they're all recognized differently by the immune system. And they're also quite unpredictable. So we don't always know which of these different viruses will cause the next epidemic. Um, additionally, once, even if we know which of these might cause the next epidemic, because the viruses mutate so rapidly, they can escape the immune system. So yes, it's quite difficult to make a universal vaccine by targeting those, um, I guess, highly variable external parts of the virus. So we focus on the internal parts because they're usually more conserved or more shared across different types of flu viruses. And those are usually the ones that are recognized by the killer T cells. 
Sure. Um, and why are they recognised for the, the T cells, those internal parts? Surely the immune system only, you know, bashes up against the external bit of the flu. It seems to be that it has to do with the way the killer T cells work. So the current vaccine is based on antibodies, and those antibodies will bind to the external part of the virus and prevent it from entering and infecting a cell. Killer T cells work slightly differently. So what happens is that the virus will enter the cell and then the cell um, mounts an immune response. And as part of that immune response, it will take the virus, it will break it down into small different parts um, and therefore has access to the internal parts of the virus. And then those different parts of the virus are presented to the killer T cells. So the antibodies can only see the can mostly see the external part of the virus, but the killer T cells can um, assess both the internal and the external parts of the virus. Mm. But it, I imagine it's quite hard um, to go from that primary research to actually having a universal flu vaccine. Um, what sort of hurdles do you expect along the way? Yeah, so these are certainly the early stages. There's a long way to go, and once this um, if this was to move into a clinical setting, there is a lot of steps or requirements that need to be met. However, one of the main issues we are facing at the moment is that this subset of universal killer T cells that we discovered is only found in about 50% of the world's population. So while everyone has killer T cells in their body, these work slightly differently across individuals. Um, and this means that currently the vaccine we have would only provide protection to about half of the world. So we're now focusing on using the same techniques that we've already used to identify more universal killer T cells that would provide protection in the other 50% of the world because obviously we want to make a universal vaccine for all flu strains, but we also need to make one that can protect everyone. Have you had a look at some of the, um, the other companies that are doing similar things? Um, yeah, there are different... So. There are different approaches in making a T-cell-based vaccine, and it's actually quite good to see some of them being tested in clinical trials um, with promising results, um, and especially being some of the um, safe to use in the clinic. Um, I guess the main difference across the different types of T-cell-based vaccine is the antigenic composition, and I think most of those, um, to the best of my knowledge at least, those um, other types of T-cell vaccines are mostly targeted to influenza A. Um, and I guess part of our, the novelty of our work is that we're trying to cover um, influenza B and to some extent C as well, if possible. Thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us a little bit about your research. Um, what's next for you in, uh, in this area? Uh, well, as I said, we're trying to, um, we're going to keep working on this um, universal um, flu vaccine and we're trying to identify more universal killer T-cells to um, ensure that we can protect everyone around the world. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for the Medical Republic podcast. Thanks for joining us. Next week, Francine is speaking to some experts on foodborne diseases. 